This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The Northern Lights are a breathtaking display of color in the night sky, but not everyone is lucky enough to see them. Indigenous people who have observed them for millennia understand the dazzling phenomenon as a display of ancestral spirit activity or a link to another world. In today's Encore show, we'll explore both the cultural views and Western scientific interpretations of the Northern Lights. That's coming up after National Native News. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. A new children's book in the Tlingit language was celebrated at a gathering in Juneau, Alaska, the first of its kind in decades. As KMBA's Rhonda McBride tells us, it's the first of a nine-part series. Do you all agree this book is beautiful, huh? Tlingit and Haida's president, Richard Peterson, held up the book to show off the illustrations by two Tlingit artists, Nick and Kelsey Foote. The book is called Kahanta, which means orphan in Tlingit, a story about a girl taken in by a powerful family and through her struggles learns life lessons about the tribal values of respect. Peterson wishes he had had a book like this to read when he was a boy. We didn't have these opportunities. And it may not make sense because certainly we had more elders, we had more first language speakers, but we know because of things like boarding schools and historic trauma, there was a lot of shame and people telling us that we couldn't proudly be who we are. But students from the Tlingit Culture, Literacy and Language program were full of pride as they performed at the celebration. Joel Masurv, a Tlingit language instructor, says the new book will help learning become more meaningful. These kids are so fortunate to see themselves in their teachers, in their curriculum, in our books, and in their community. If you're looking for the English version, it doesn't exist. Kune Lance Twitchell says the language needs to stand on its own. He worked with a team of elders to produce the book that included George Davis, Marge Dutson, and Ethel Mackinnon. I thought of Marge, and I thought of George, and I thought of Ethel, and how much I wish I could show this to them. But Kune produced a video of the book so everyone can both see and hear the story. <laughs> In Anchorage, I'm Rhonda McBride. Another new book, a memoir called Survival Food, shares stories from growing up on the Menominee Reservation in Wisconsin. The author, Thomas Wieso, passed away before the book was published, as WUWM's Lena Tran tells us. Thomas Wieso grew up in a time of economic transformation when commodity goods were eaten alongside game from Wisconsin's Northwoods, and then there was the rise of processed foods. He often wrote about food. Here he is speaking in a 2021 interview with Wisconsin Historical Society Press. We, we should think about where our food comes from, because I, if we think where our food comes from, we'll take better care of the land around us. And if we take better care of the land around us, we take better care of ourselves. Wieso's wife, the writer Denise Lowe, says he was interested in writing about indigenous people in the present. He had a very zen sense of like, what's here now? 
and not what were Indians like or indigenous people like a hundred years ago. Here we are now. That's why you'll find all kinds of recipes in the new book, from tamale pie to turtle soup. There's instructions on how to forage milkweed pods, which Wieso writes are tasty with butter, but he likes mixing them with canned tuna into boxed mac and cheese. He doesn't just stick to indigenous food. He tries to embrace the diner foods that he loved also and to accept that there was an intermixture. Wieso's taste celebrated that unique mix found only in Wisconsin on the Menominee Reservation. For National Native News, I'm Lena Tran in Milwaukee. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Vision Maker Media, envisioning a world changed and healed by understanding Native stories and the public conversations they generate. 45 plus years of Native stories and Indigenous knowledge through film and media can be found at visionmakermedia.org. More tribes are using drones from Cayuse Native Solutions to economically collect data for disaster response, aerial inspections, and more. More about drone services available at CayuseNativeSolutions.com who support this show. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The Northern Lights are breathtaking to witness for those lucky enough to see them. Dancing curtains of green, purple, and red illuminate the night sky, usually in northern locations. Indigenous elders and culture bearers pass down the stories developed about the Northern Lights through the generations. As we approach the longest night of the year, we'll hear from storytellers about how their indigenous ancestors define and connect to the Northern Lights. A disclaimer for today, talking about the Northern Lights is not always welcome and could be taboo for members of some tribes. Please consider that before listening to our show today. Speaking with us now from Whitehorse in Yukon Territory, Canada, is Sharon Shorty. She's a storyteller, comedian, and performer. She's Tlingit and Northern Tushoni. Hello, Sharon. Thanks for joining us today. Hello, Masicho. Good to have you on the sh- Good to have you on the show, Sharon. Gabe Tagusak is speaking with us from Anchorage, Alaska. He is an Inupiaq activist, storyteller, and a subsistence hunter, born and raised in Utkiakvik. Good morning, Gabe. Welcome to the show. Hey, good morning. And in Tohatchi, New Mexico, we're joined by Dana Nez. She is Dene and also a cultural consultant. Dana, hello. Great to have you on the show as well. Oh, yate. Yate. Sharon, I want to go ahead and start with you today. Your home in Whitehorse, Canada sits about 350 miles north of Juneau, Alaska, as the eagle flies. What do you remember about the first time you saw the Northern Lights? Well, um, I spent a lot of time with my uh, grandmothers, but uh, 
with my Clindic grandma, Carrie Jackson, in Teslin, Yukon. We moved inland. Our family was um, originally from Juneau, actually. And um, we would be uh, walking around the village, and and, uh, and I want to share that story if I can. Um, that she lived in the smallest cabin you ever saw, little little Yukon logs that were forced into accommodation. Her cabin was crammed full of drying whitefish from Teslin Lake, old onion sacks reused as gunny sacks, axes, wooden matches, rabbit and fox furs, carnation canned milk, kettles of black tea, sugar, lots of Rogers sparkling sugar, which is in a shortage right now, by the way. <laughs> and we would do a thing that doesn't happen so much anymore, which was go around walking from house to house, cabin to cabin, and visit each other. But when we'd be out visiting, um, maybe I was around seven years old, I remember walking around in the mukluks that she sold for me, and her feet would be crunching in the snow back when the snow used to be dry and cold. It'd be crunching, and she'd be using her diamond willow cane, walking in 30 below, and I'd be noticing these huge dancing ribbons in the sky and looking at them, and Grandma would say, Ach, which says, My grandchild, don't look, it's no good. She'd whisper to me, and I wanted to know why the northern lights were no good, but I didn't ask then. But every night we would walk out, and I would look up the same thing. My grandchild, don't look, it's no good. In my mind, I said, why? But in the Tlingit culture, you don't ask why. It's a rude question. I'm supposed to watch and learn. Because they're my ancestors, because they died in a bad way, because they could come down to earth when you look at them and they could take you away, and if you look at the Northern Lights, you might see a, a circle of people holding hands, moving across the traditional land, looking for victims to capture, to feed their loneliness, and spirits carrying away people to the spirit world. And that's what she told me, and that's what I believe. Sharon, that's an absolutely uh, beautiful and very just uh, intriguing story that you just shared. So. Your grandma would say, don't look, don't look, they're no good. So now here you are, you're grown, you're an adult. Do you still abide by, by grandma's rules and don't look? Well, I'll tell you, um, years later after grandma was gone, I started to look and there was one night and it was, it was in December, it was very cold out and uh, that seems to be the best time to see them. And I was uh, I was up close to Gray Mountain, which is a little high point in around the Whitehorse area, so further away from the light city lights, and it was really dark up there. So, and sure enough, I saw dancing ribbons, and in my mind, and I thought, oh man, I really want to see them because I could see the colors, all the colors I could see. Of course, green and blues, but I also saw unusual was to see red and purple, so I wanted to see them. So I looked at them, and they were going so fast, 
just moving really fast across the sky. And uh, I didn't breathe. I didn't do anything stupid like whistle at them because I didn't want them to notice me, you see? It seemed like they were looking at me. That's why I felt like it. And I was looking up, and um, there was another couple nearby me taking pictures, but I I didn't even have a camera. And I was looking up, and the next thing I felt, it feels like they're coming closer, but I don't think so. That seems ridiculous. And then I said, mm, yeah, there's, I think they're coming closer. I, I don't know what's going on. And then all of a sudden, I felt like they were surrounding me. And um, and I felt like this uh, extra warmth. I remember I said it was a cold night. And they were the northern lights were touching me. And I thought, oh, man, like it was going through my cells. I could explain it that way. And I thought, oh, oh, Grandma was right. I looked at them. They came down, and they're coming to take me the spirit world. So I just stood there, I stood still, and I thought, oh no, I'm not ready to go yet. (laughs) (laughs) I waited, and they didn't take me. (laughs) (laughs) How come? Was it no good? Why didn't the ancestors take me? (laughs) I don't know. Is Grandma still protecting me? But Grandma was right. I looked at the northern lights, and they came for me. <laughs> grandma, grandma, like, looking out for you, Sharon. Looking out for you. Wow, wow. I just really enjoying listening to you talk, Sharon, and sharing his stories. Um, so, how often are you able to see the Northern Lights there in, in Whitehorse? Are they frequently visible? It, if it's a clear night, um, it's pretty much regular every night. I think um, like today seems clear, sunny, and clear. We just had our sunrise ceremony about half an hour ago. <laughs> but, um, yeah, if it's clear, sure. You know, I see it because, um, you know, people post it nowadays on Facebook. It's everywhere. You can't miss it. And um, from my house, I live right in the city. I could see it right from my um, front front yard. And um, if it's really something special, I'll go wake up my husband. And I do I do try to see them if I can. Um, I... Uh, I know there's lots of people come from all over the world to come see the Northern Lights, like um, on their bucket list, and that's pretty amazing. So do you um, get a lot of tourists there in the Yukon Territory, just coming specifically to see the lights? Oh, tons, tons. We have a big winter tourism, and it's, it's almost probably 90% of it comes to Northern Lights. And so they... Um, um, yeah, people from all over Japan, Germany, you name it. Mex- Mexico. That one surprised me. I'm like, really? You came from Mexico to here? It's cold. Why would you want to come <laughs> here? But they do. <laughs> and what are, what and, are uh, they, in addition to seeing the lights, I mean, what else do they want to understand about about the Northern Lights? I mean, do they ask you stories and and to share history and culture and topics like that? Yeah. Yeah, they, they sometimes ask for Indigenous perspective. And so um, the one time, a well, few times I've been asked to share my stories, and uh, I did, and, and they're like, oh, so we're not supposed to look at them. I'm like, yep. <laughs> <laughs> That's a long way to come. Hey, you come all this way, but you can't look, right? <laughs> wow. It's just a different wow. perspective of, um, but I think, Really, I think it's like respect, respect them, respect it. They understand right. that what what we believe is if 
someone had passed on in, in a hard way, that that could be their spiritualness, so it's something to be respected. So, yeah, I would, I, it was hard for me to imagine what a really old elder would think right now about the way the Northern Lights industry is that's monetized, pictures, calendars. Um, I don't know. I don't know what they would think about it. That's quite different now. I ask myself that same question all the time when I think of what, what our elders would say if they could see the way our communities have changed and in some ways for the better and, and maybe some ways differently. I don't know. It's, it's an interesting conversation. Sharon, really appreciate you, you joining us on the show here today and, uh, and sharing your history, your life experience, and of course, your knowledge of the Northern Lights. We're going to take a short break. Every new year, many of us challenge ourselves to improve our health, relationships, or life goals. But it's also easy to give in to doubt or worries about the negative forces in the country or the world. We'll get some wise words about starting the year off right on the next Native America Calling. Support for this program provided by Vision Maker Media, who envisions a world changed and healed by understanding Native stories and the public conversations they generate. Nurturing the next generation of storytellers with courage, generosity, creativity, respect, and commitment. 45-plus years of Native stories and Indigenous knowledge through film and media can be found at visionmakermedia.org, whose slogan is, Together We Are Vision Makers. You are tuned to Native America Calling. I'm your host, Sean Spruce, and we're focusing on the cosmos today, specifically the Northern Lights. Western science explains the aurora borealis as space dust caught up in a solar wind. Indigenous views include a more spiritual connection. We've got Gabe Tegusak on the line in Anchorage, Alaska. He was born and raised in Utkiavik. And Gabe, I want to thank you again for joining us today. And Utkiakvik, that's the northernmost town in the United States. You must have a really good view of the northern lights there. Hey, good morning, uh, Sean. Yes, definitely. It's always, uh, there's, there's no trees, so there's nothing really to obstruct it, too. So. What do you remember uh, the first time you saw them as a child? What was it like? What was that experience like? Oh, well, I remember... I saw them through the window and I was wondering like, wow, check this out. You know, mom, dad, look, it was like 
something magical is happening. And when I was getting bundled up, I remember my mom, she would always give me old elder like teachings because she was raised very traditional in Yupak. And she'd say, Kiwiaki is what we call them. And she would warn me that the Northern Lights were something to not really mess with. And that if you were to whistle or to sing too loud, the Kiwiaki would come down and chop off your head. And weirdly enough, they would play ball with your head. They would kick it around, and, you know. So, and I, I believed it 100%. But, you know, being a kid, I went out there to test it. And I remember looking up and I took my hood off and I started whistling. And I was gazing up, seeing at the uh, Kiwiaki was moving. But as I whistled a little louder, the Kiwiaki started moving towards me. I jumped and like hit the deck and jumped straight into the snow, <laughs> covering my head, um, you know, just praying to our ancestors to like have mercy. <laughs> and, um, you know, there were different uh, variations that I would hear Kiwiaki. And one version would be that they were old spirits that passed away, um, that there are our ancestors. Um, another story I heard or a version was that there were children who passed away too young, um, but their spirit still lives. And mm-hmm. though they are playful, they could be mischievous. Um, and it really, you know, I immediately ran in and was terrified. And I thought for sure that the spirits, you know, were going to come after me or Kiwiaki was right there. And we had a song that was uh, taught to us when I was a young kid where if you sang it, you were basically testing the spirits or like teasing them um, or pick a sarking. But uh, the song is really short. It goes, Kiwiaki, Kiwiaki, Angi, Angi, Ya. Kalutakpi, Nakalutakpi, Nakangi, Angi, Ya. And it was said if you sang that song, you would um, invoke the spirits and Kiwiaki mm-hmm. would come after you. And so I was always you know, it was like a, a double-edged sword to me of seeing that, you know, you had to have your hood up, you had to make sure you're aware and to be respectful to the spirits and to honor and to, um, you know, not test or push them. Well, Gabe, I'm really happy that you didn't become a human soccer ball and uh, and oh, you're here to tell your stories here <laughs> on Native America Calling. And the melody of that song, it looks kind of, it sounds kind of familiar, especially during during the holidays here. So appreciate you sharing that. Let's go ahead and take a phone call now. Henry is up in Point Hope, Alaska, listening on KBRW. Good morning, Henry. Welcome to Native America hey, Calling. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Just wanted to share a small story about, you know, our northern lights. Because we mainly always see in the moonly winter time, and uh, but anyways, for us to get home early or on curfew, our parents slash grandparents would tell us stories about the northern lights coming down and chopping your head off, kind of similar to that guy's story, you know, and then playing games with it. But I was pretty traumatized in a silly way, of course, but you know. I'd run home pole to pole, whatever pole has a light on. I'd run that because, you know, we'd hear a lot. As soon as you whistle, it seems, it seems as if they would dance. But um, 
growing up, it was always a way of, you know, making sure we got home. Mm-hmm. And there is a lot more to it. Um, you know, our ancestors, they believe, you know, there's a bunch of stories that I should have looked in before, but I just thought I'd tell that little story about, you know, getting home on time for a curfew. Henry, that's a great story, and I'm really glad you called in today. And Gabe, listening to you, listening to Sharon, listening to our caller Henry, I mean, I just don't know how you folks made it through your childhoods up there in the northern parts there with these stories and these uh, just the, I mean, we have Henry mentioning he was traumatized in some ways by, by these thoughts. But let's move forward, Gabe. Now, here you are. You're an adult. You're also a parent. And, and how do you relate to the Northern Lights now that you're fully grown? Yeah, I mean, my mother told me that story. She said her grandmother told her that. And she got her that information from her grandmother from that. And I had double-checked it yesterday to make sure that, make sure I was accurate, which... Um, to, to the story at hand, but being a parent today, it really, cause you know, you got to watch out for your kids. You got to make sure if they're out playing. Cause when I was a kid, that was the best, the best thing, the most funnest thing ever was to go out and play. And in the cold, it gets really cold uh, up North and we would have to bundle up, you know, and my mom would make sure I had my nussuck, you know, my hood up. And um, now being a parent, I tell the stories, even my daughter. And I realized that it, it really invokes or teaches lessons. And, um, and a lot of these stories that we have, the songs, whether it's dance or singing, we never wrote anything down for many generations, you know? So what we did pass on was these stories, songs, and dance. And so to me, the story of Kiwiaki is a lot of lessons. Like one is like situation awareness. Oh, Cause we got a lot of polar bears up North. We got a lot of, you know, random, uh, who knows, random foxes or rabid foxes and sometimes wolves, you know, um, having situation awareness and ensuring that you're always kind of keeping your head on a swivel because you never know. Um, also, you know, to respect the land, to respect the spirits, respect each other, really. And in the end, bundle up because you know how little kids are. They don't want to wear a coat sometimes or they don't want to bundle up. And uh, it's a way to kind of protect them. Because when I was a kid and my mom told me to keep my nasak up, my hood up, or, you know, kiwiaki might get you, you know, or being too loud or whistling, um, it really uh, told a tale that I had to kind of figure out throughout the years through my journey. And it was like all these lessons, you know. Now that I'm a parent, I teach my kids some of these, uh, these tales that I was given. Now, Gabe, do you tell your daughter the, the same, do you give her the same warning that you received? Like, you know, this could be dire if you're not careful, or you, do you lighten up a little bit? I'm curious here. Um, yes, but it doesn't have as much weight because she is, you know, plugged into the internet and could just Google it, but she doesn't really understand how <laughs> our lessons were taught. You know, we didn't have Google when I was a, when I was younger, so it was like, you know, it's on a different like a network, you know, a different spiritual right. network, a different connectivity. Right. But she honors it, and she's amazed by it. But she doesn't sing or whistle, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's good to know. Thank you, Gabe. We've got Michael listening in Jemez Pueblo, New Mexico, on station KUNM. Hello, Michael. What do you like about the Northern Lights? 
Oh, yeah. Um, once, about oh, close to 28 years ago or so, uh, we, my, me and my three boys, we went after wood for my parents up in the Hamas. And then it was nighttime when we started coming back up to Albuquerque. And then on 550 between Zia and Santa Ana, I looked to the, to the north and I, said, and I said out loud to my boys, I can't believe this. And they said, what? I said, there's Aurora Borealis. So we pull over to the side of the, the road on the, on, the, on the shoulder. And to my amazement, all the traffic going both the east and west were pulled over, turned their lights off, and everybody was outside their vehicles just awing to the sky because the, all those colors that were described were in the sky from uh, behind Santa Ana Pueblo, uh, Zia Pueblo, Santa Ana Pueblo, all the way down to the Rio Grande Valley. And then as we got into the, our vehicle and headed further east, then the behind the behind the Sandias was the red curtain, red. And then the next day, the Albuquerque Journal had a big up article on it and we're explaining the phenomena. And they, I think they even showed it on TV. But I, I just I, I've never heard this in public country. You know, the, uh, any kind of story or about about that the, the Aurora Borealis. And to this day, I, I bring it up once in a while to my boys, and they just say, Yeah, yeah, it was awesome. You know, it was. It was it was once it was once in a lifetime experience experience here in New Mexico. That's a heck of a story there, Michael. Thank you for sharing. That's Michael Hamas Pueblo, New Mexico. He has seen the Northern Lights as far south as Hamas Pueblo, Santana Pueblo, Sandia Pueblo. That's pretty far south. Let's go ahead and uh, take another call. We have uh, a person by the name of Liz McDonald on the line, and Liz is a space physicist at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, and Liz is also the founder of the Aurorasaurus Project. Hello, Liz. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Thank you for having me. Liz, we're hearing some great stories from cult some cultural and, and native perspectives of, uh, of the Northern Lights, but uh, help us out with a little bit uh, a more scientific, Western scientific explanation for the Northern Lights. What exactly are they? Yeah, sure. It, it's an honor to respectfully offer a little of the Western science perspective um, as well. And so the Northern Lights um, are caused by the sun, which gives us life and light, but also charged particles that come out in all directions. And the sun as well has cycles of how many of these particles come out with solar flares. And um, every 11 years, the sun gets more active. And that's when you might be able to see the northern lights more frequently further south in the northern hemisphere, um, just like the last caller mentioned. So we're actually coming up on one of those maximum right now. So the aurora have been more visible and active over the last year, and there's been a lot of interest in that. Um, but the solar winds comes out from the sun in all directions, and it actually impacts um, this energy is transferred into the Earth's magnetic field, we kind of live in the outer atmosphere of the sun, and we live in the magnetic bubble of the sun. It actually protects us from most of these particles. Um, but some of that energy is transferred into the Earth's magnetic field region, and it gets all swirled around. And um, uh, the Earth's magnetic field around the poles, um, the energy gets transferred down 
uh, away from the sun side to the night side uh, where it's dark and um, that energy uh, gets stored and then released every few hours um, and it causes the northern lights to really dance um, kind of most actively around midnight um, and then they kind of subside again and they build back up and then sometimes the solar wind is much more active because of what the sun's been doing so it gets um, much more powerful as well but that's just a, a little um, uh, explanation of, of some of that and the particles mm -hmm. rain down on the upper atmosphere and they cause the characteristic colors of the northern lights um, when they hit the really high up atmosphere like 60 miles up it's mostly oxygen that causes the colors that we see Liz, thanks for that explanation. Now, is it true that uh, there is a risk for the Northern Lights having an impact on power grids? Yes. Yes, it is. Um, they're um, charged particles raining down, and um, that's where it gets into the physics, is the charged particles is kind of a current, and it can actually induce currents on the ground um, over long power lines or um, even the Alaska pipeline, things like that. Um, there are concerns for that and mitigations for that. And there are also effects on um, astronauts and uh, uh, people flying over the poles as well. Now, where can listeners go to to learn more about the Northern Lights or, or perhaps see if the Northern Lights might be visible in their location? Yeah, so... Um, this field of space weather that I'm talking about is also called heliophysics. Um, that's the area of NASA that I work in. And then the Aurorasaurus project that I founded is a project where um, people all over can report if they have seen the Northern Lights um, and help each other out in this era with smartphones and get an alert if um, either the uh, we only have, you know, space is so large, it's very difficult to make very accurate predictions of the northern lights. Um, so we have some very coarse predictions of the northern lights that are available if you sign up at um, aurorasaurus.org. Um, and then we also have a prediction, which is if people around you, the citizen scientists or volunteers, are reporting that they've seen aurora around you, that's a much stronger alert that you might want to go out if it's clear and safe to do so. Liz, uh, is there something similar to the Aurora Borealis, uh, like a Southern Lights, or is this a phenomenon unique to the Northern Hemisphere? Yeah, um, it, there, there are Southern Lights as well. It's kind of mostly symmetric over the North and South. So when it's seen, um, when it's seen uh, over Alaska, it's also seen in kind of the, um, we call it the conjugate point, um, which is actually the connection of the magnetic field line down to the southern hemisphere. It's kind of hard to describe on the radio, but the magnetic field, you know, sort of looks like a, a bar magnet or like a butterfly. So it's, they're symmetric points. And Liz, are there any issues or anything that scientists don't understand about the Northern Lights, or are they, have they pretty much figured out exactly what they are from a scientific perspective? Um, I like to say we figured out about 90% of it, and then there's, you know, the really active times and the predictions. Um, 
all of that is still being worked out. Excuse me. <laughs> well, Liz, really appreciate you joining our show today and to provide that insight. Uh, the Aurora Borealis. Can you see them where you are located? Connect with us on Facebook, connect with us on Instagram. Let us know what you like about today's show. And as always, you can listen to a recording of this show on your favorite podcast platform as well. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Pursuing a degree in higher education is attainable, and with a scholarship from Native Forward Scholars Fund, it is more affordable. From aerospace to veterinary medicine, as the largest direct scholarship provider to Native students in the U.S., Native Forward has empowered over 22,000 students from over 500 tribes in all 50 states in pursuit of their undergraduate, graduate, and professional degrees. Info and applications at nativeforward.org, who support this show. You're listening to Native America Calling. Today we're talking about the Aurora Borealis, a.k.a. the Northern Lights. How do your people interpret the Northern Lights? Do you remember the first time you saw the Northern Lights? Or maybe you've never seen them. There's a book out that explores the beauty of the Northern Lights through both a cultural and scientific lens. It's called Spirits Dancing. It's filled with pictures by Ojibwe photographer Travis Novitsky. He talked recently with producer Andy Murphy about his ongoing fascination with the Aurora Borealis. I've been known as a Northern Lights photographer or a night sky photographer for most of the time that I've been a photographer, which is over 25 years now. And um, it went from there. We found Annette Lee to, to uh, write the text for the book. And it really does um, weave together nicely the Western science perspective of the Northern Lights and then indigenous perspectives from several different cultures, you know, Ojibwe, Dakota, Northern Dene among them. You know, the Ojibwe people have several terms for the Northern Lights. One that we use in the book is Jibayag Nima Itiwag. Jibayag is the word for ghosts or spirits, and Nima Itiwag refers to that they're dancing. So literally, that term is the title of the book, right? Spirits dancing. There are other terms too, like Wawate, which is there is a display of northern lights. Another term I learned recently is Wasanude. Um, the beginning part of that word comes from the word for lightning or flashing light. And then Nude, the second part, comes from Nudan, which is wind. The northern lights are kind of described as like a flashing light wind, which is super interesting, I think, because now, you know, science has shown us, proven to us that the northern lights is part of the solar wind stream and it's entering our atmosphere and these particles are burning up and creating these fantastic light displays. So it's cool to, to think of that connection culturally and scientifically kind of having a parallel. But then when you go up to the northern Dene people, you know, span across Canada, like they have as many as 40 to 42 different names for the northern lights. And, you know, they're farther north than we are, so they see them more often and have more familiarity and thus, you know, more names for them, which can relate to many different aspects like 
some of the terms referred to, like caribou and the relationship that Dene people see between caribou and the northern lights. So kind of massively interesting and something I'm learning more about each day. When I generally practice my photography, that's it's very much a mindful approach on my part. Um, you know, photography is very intentional and being under the night sky is something that keeps me grounded and centered in a very busy world. It's it's kind of what recharges me or refreshes, rejuvenates all of those things. And, you know, the text of the book talks about those things as well. And and I've, I've been told that the images are very relaxing for people. So I think um, we have reached that goal of kind of taking the photos and the text and creating this, this thing that really makes people um, come away with a, a deeper sense of appreciation for all things night sky. What do you feel when you see the northern lights, especially when you have multiple colors and, and it's it's really active? Even to this day, after viewing and photographing the lights, you know, seeing them my whole life, I still have this sense of amazement and kind of an unbelievable feeling like, wow, like, am I actually seeing this? When the lights are dancing, when they're filling two-thirds of the sky or more, and you see green, you see purple, you see red, even blue sometimes, which is a pretty rare color, but blue does occur as well at the tips or at the upper ends of some of the auroral rays or curtains. To see all of that is just very surreal, you know, even no matter how many times you see it, I'm still amazed by it. I've had the good fortune to share with countless other people over the years, you know, their first time seeing it the emotions and behaviors that they display when they're seeing it for the first time is it reminds me of when I was a little kid and seeing them for the first time. And that sense of amazement just never goes away. That's Travis Nowitzki. He's a photographer whose pictures are in a newly published book about the Northern Lights titled Spirits Dancing. Let's take another caller, Darren, listening on station KBFT in Minnesota. Hello, Darren. Welcome to the show. Hello, can you hear me? Yeah, you sound great, Darren. All right, wonderful. I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm Anishinaabe from uh, Boys Fort Band of Chippewa here in Minnesota, and I wanted to tell you a story of uh, that was told from my mom that was told to her from her mother, and it was of the Northern Lights, and uh, our beliefs is that it's um, our ancestors, our spirits, or whatever you want to call them, coming down to watch over us, and... Uh, and and with the whistling at night, we have that same tale. Also, uh, we're told that it's it uh, nighttime is for the spirits, and if we whistle, you know they'll come down, and you never know what kind of spirit will come visit you. Um, with the northern lights, I, the uh, the way they think it is now is energy, but there's no uh, reason to think that maybe our spirits, our ancestors that have passed on, maybe they are energy. Uh, coming to visit us. So that, those are my two tales. Maybe they are. Maybe they are, Darren. That's a good point to make. Appreciate your call. Darren, up in Minnesota on KBFT, providing that Ojibwe perspective. Voice for it. Let's bring Dana Nez into our conversation now. She has been waiting patiently in Tohatchie, New Mexico. She is a cultural consultant, and she is Danae. Dana, again, I want to thank you for joining our show. And uh, we heard from the caller, Michael, in Jemez Pueblo. He's seen the northern lights as far south as New Mexico. How about there in Navajo country? Uh, are the northern lights ever visible? And if so, are there any Navajo protocols for how to deal with the lights when they 
present themselves. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Um, yat is say denanez dasidinez nanas asinsme my desk is ni pasitin asin ni pasitche thori chite ni dasinala. So what's up? Um, yeah. Okay. All right. All right. So northern lights are not something that's common in the southwest. It's not something that you see like. The Southwest, like my territory, like in the Four Corners region, like kind of by the, um, like it's, it's Tohachi, it's like right at the base of the mountain. So we have one of the best dark skies in the world. Chaco Canyon is is um, located maybe like 30 miles east of us, and that's one of the international dark skies in, you know, in the world. So. If you want to see what the skies are like, if you want to see what's out there, you got to come over here. So, um, my grandpa, um, okay, all right. So, Tahachi is at the the base of this Chuska Mountain. And um, where we live permanently, there's a small ranch with, like, some sheep and some cattle and some horses. And so... Like when I was young, like maybe like eight to ten years old, um, I first went on my cattle, my first cattle drive, where we took the sheep and the cattle up the mountain. It took us; we had to spend overnight, like halfway, and then take them up the rest of the way the next day. So you know, I used to ride a horse back then. So you know, that's what we used to do: like take them up and down the mountain every season. You know, they spend the winters down here and then the summers up there. So you got to understand where I'm coming from when I'm talking about skies. All right. So my Che, my Che, the one who raised like 10 girls and four boys, the, the ones who survived to adulthood, there were some that died in childhood. My, my grandmother gave birth to 17 children. But anyways, um, he used to see the Northern Lights. He told us stories, like he could see them dancing in, like, in, in the north. And he said that there's not really like any stories because like um, they're just like bursts of energy. And what's interesting is that for us as the Ne, like way back in the black world, all there was is energy, like bursts of energy. So they talk about like um, like a white column and a blue column and a yellow column and a black column, and that's the colors of light that they emitted, and that was pure energy. So um, um, like the the energy within our sacred mountains, the energy within all of our sacred deities, are these very same columns of light, and to me, as a astronomer and a, a cultural teacher, um, like you know, and a, as a student of like of like the philosophy, um, that is the same thing. So to look at the northern lights, honestly, what my chase said, he says like he said, don't look at it. They, like there's the same thing that they say about the moon. You're not supposed to look at the moon. You can't stare at the moon. And you never, ever, ever look at the eclipse. Not the moon eclipse, not the sun eclipse. Ever, ever, ever. Don't you ever look at it. 
It means death for you. <laughs> uh, that's the severity of um, Navajos and the eclipse. Um, sorry, uh-huh. got 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 super. <laughs> Dana, really, this is, really right <laughs> yeah no this is intense really appreciate you sharing and well what i also find uh really really interesting about about your story is i mean you have all this traditional knowledge all this history personal family history and yet now you actually do work with nasa and you provide cultural insights so tell us a little bit about that work and how it ties into this oh whole issue God. of the northern lights Okay, all right, all right. Well, um, in relation to the Northern Lights, we haven't actually studied the Northern Lights yet, but uh, my work with NASA began back in 2011. I was just a little, little parent, like running around, and they asked me, like, can you help us look after these kids? Because like, they were doing a summer program, and they had these um, native, um, like, like indigenous knowledge keepers. One of them was a botanist. The other one was a, a geologist, and the other one was a, a storyteller. And then they also had a geologist, and they also had a botanist. And then they had another um, – she she wasn't into geology. She was into the planets. I, I, I forgot what her field of study is, but her name is Julia. I mean, I, I know her. I remember her, like, right now. But anyways, I came on as, a, like, um, like – like a camp facilitator. I just help watch the kids yell at them when they get out of hand. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. And then they told me, like, they're like, hey, we need you to present this cultural knowledge. And I'm like, what? I don't know anything, you know? Like, I was like, and then, like, I was thinking about my grandma, my grandpa, my mom, and my dad, and everything, like, all the ceremonies. I'm like, oh my God. I freaked out. But um, basically, I just read off the read off the poster and I was all like, This is how it is I was like, mm-hmm. What's up? And it kind of like kind of reinvigorated the, the knowledge within me. So from there, just been running with it. Wow, wow. This is so cool, Dana. Now another interesting uh factoid for today's show is that today is also the winter solstice. Dana, what does the winter solstice mean for, for Navajo people? Oh my goodness. Like it's um Okay, so the Navajo Hogan is actually a calendar. So Navajos, they look through the, the doorway and watch where the sun rises all the time. They also look through the, the smoke hole and see where the stars are at. So the stars inform, like, you know, what time of year it is for us, and so does the, the sun because, you know, it moves back and forth on the horizon. So, like... Navajos keep notches on their their hogans. It's a natural calendar. The hogan is also like a representation of the universe, in it with its four poles and its circular um, um, structure. It is a reflection of the the stars above. So like it's a natural occurrence that Navajos are astronomers. It just happens. It's what we do in the home, in the hogan. So. The winter solstice, it's, it, it's a marker. It's another notch in the wood inside the house. So here we go. We mark another another moon. So it it's like the sun's going to return, and then we got to prepare ourselves, and then we got to watch for Dilyehe. Dilyehe is one of the most important constellations for Dine ever. 
Oh, my God. Okay, this is my favorite one. Is it okay if I tell you about it? Yeah, we're going to have to wrap up in about a minute. But, yeah, go for it, Dana. Okay, all right. We're I, listening. I, can, I can do it real fast. Okay, all right. Go for it. Delia is a female um, power, and Delia is what we call Pleiades, the seven sisters. But um, from those seven stars, we get those seven sticks that we use to um, – the um, the canal love cake, and those connect us to those stars back above. And so when we pass, we get to become one of those stars. And that, if you look at it closely as an astronomer, you'll notice that that is a star-forming region. Wow, wow, Dana, this is some good stuff here you're sharing. Really appreciate you joining the show. And uh, what do you have planned for today with regard to the winter solstice? Anything? Actually, I'm visiting my sister, and she's about to make some food right now. There you go. There you go. Well, appreciate you joining us, Dana. Uh, wonderful perspective. So today, folks, we, we got a wide range of perspectives. We heard from uh, one guest, uh, Sharon Shorty, way up in the Yukon Territory in Canada. We heard from Gabe in Anchorage, Alaska. And, of course, uh, we hear from Dana Nez down in New Mexico. So fascinating how these northern lights and some of these constellations and some of these uh, events that happen in space, how they impact Native people in so many different ways and so many different communities. And we also had a scientific perspective, a Western scientific perspective from Liz McDonald, who joined the show. So want to thank all of our guests today, Sharon Shorty, Gabe Degusek and Dana Nez, and also all the folks that called in today. Really appreciate you joining the conversation and sharing your perspectives. And I know some people were not able to get their calls in. Apologize for that. We had a lot of callers. But please, you can still continue the conversation. Share your comments. Share your thoughts on social media, Facebook, Instagram, NativeAmericaCalling.com, too. Just hit our website and give us a shout-out. Hope you'll join us again tomorrow here at the show. Until then... Enjoy the rest of your day. I'm Sean Spruce. Support by the Intertribal Agriculture Council. Have you or someone you know experienced discrimination in USDA lending programs before January 1, 2021? The USDA Discrimination Financial Assistance Program, DFAP, is a limited one-time program to provide financial support to ranchers, farmers, and forest landowners discriminated against by USDA lending programs. Interested producers must apply by January 13th. More info and application assistance at IndianAg.org. Happy New Year. Now is a great time to start the new habit that will keep you healthy. Eat right, get plenty of exercise, enough sleep are the key to health lifestyle. Talk with your health care provider about change you can make to the new year be on your best side. For more information, contact your Indian health care provider or visit healthcare.gov. A message from a Center for Medicare and Medicaid Service. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.